Subscribe to The Spectator this summer and get the next 10 weeks of the magazine as well as unlimited access to our website and app for just £10. Not only that, we'll send you a bottle of Pims absolutely free, only while stocks last. So go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash Pims to claim this offer now. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read out their pieces for you from the latest issue. This week we'll be joined by the Australian writer Sasha O'Sullivan about how she's been stranded in the UK and she just wants to get back home. Then we'll also be hearing from Ian Williams talking about China's Me Too moment. And finally, Toby Young on his trip up north with his two boys. First up is Sasha O'Sullivan. In early March last year, I was self-isolating my flat in London. Even though there were only a few hundred confirmed cases of COVID a day, I had met someone the week before who had tested positive. This was before anyone knew much about the virus, but people were worried by the news coming out of China and northern Italy. I made frantic calls to 111 to try and get a test. No luck. Why don't you just come home? My mum in Sydney asked. I can't, I replied. I work here as a journalist. I have a flat. I have shelves full of books too heavy to ship back. I have a life. If it gets really bad, I'll be on the first flight home. I promise. When I made the decision to stay, it never occurred to me that more than a year later, I would be wondering if I'd be able to get home by Christmas 2022. There are thousands of Australian expats around the world in my position. The border rules make it impossible for us to see loved ones unless we are willing to give up our lives abroad completely. A lottery-style system can secure a flight to Australia, but these are often cancelled at the last minute. Two weeks in hotel quarantine follow. Anyone unlucky enough to fly into an Australian city that's far from home risks running up against further domestic border closures between states. Take James Turbot, an Australian living in Antwerp, who rushed home to see his mother in a Perth hospital. His flight landed in Melbourne, and from hotel quarantine, he applied for an exemption to travel across the country to see her before she died. His request was denied. He was forced to say his final goodbyes to his mum over a video call on a shaky Wi-Fi connection. When asked about it, Mark McGowan, the Premier of Western Australia, said that Mr Turbot's case was one of the issues when you live overseas. This was just one of many egregious examples. A Melbourne woman in hotel quarantine in Brisbane after travelling home from Qatar was separated from her baby after she gave birth prematurely. Despite several negative tests, Queensland's health authorities deemed her too much of a risk to see her child in the neonatal intensive care unit. As for Australian residents who want to leave the country, they have to beg bureaucrats for an exemption for international travel. A neighbour from my home city was refused the right to go to his mother's funeral in England. Earlier this month, the government quietly closed what it called a loophole, which allowed people who reside permanently overseas to leave Australia without an exemption. Australia once valued adventure and independence. Growing up in Sydney, I idolised girls at school who went overseas. They represented an Australian dream, taking what they knew and forging a path for themselves abroad. Our unofficial national anthem, much more popular than the official one, is used in an advert for Qantas, the national airline. No matter how far or how wide I roam, I still call Australia home. There is a rotten side to the isolationist mindset that has captured my country in the pandemic. A prominent businessman writing in the Australian Financial Review has called for complete border closures with no exceptions for the foreseeable future, describing returning international travellers desperate to see our families as potential biological terrorists. 
Few Australians seem willing to stick up for those of us abroad. Many of the same teachers, mentors and family members who once encouraged us to move across the world, pursue our passions and represent our country are silent. Even those sympathetic to our plight are unwilling to concede that the rules should be relaxed. What if we bring COVID with us? We don't have a problem here, is a common refrain. And we don't want your problems, is the unspoken second half. That was Sasha O'Sullivan. And now Ian Williams. The employee alleged she was forced to drink heavily at a banquet during a business trip and was then sexually assaulted by her boss. She informed her managers, but they failed to act and told her to keep quiet. So she staged a protest in the company canteen and shared details of her ordeal in an 11-page document posted on a company message board. The company was Alibaba, China's e-commerce giant, and the document quickly spread, creating a firestorm online. Chief Executive Daniel Zhang struggled to contain the damage, saying he was shocked, angry and shameful. He fired the accused manager and the two others who had failed to act were forced to resign. We must rebuild, we must change, he said. The scandal earlier this month followed the arrest of Chris Wu, a Chinese-Canadian pop star in Beijing on suspicion of rape. He faced allegations from multiple women. This week, a well-known host on Hunan TV was accused of rape. In a long online post, his alleged victim said she had audio, video and text evidence that she was drugged and assaulted by him two years ago. Sexual harassment has rapidly become one of the most discussed topics on Chinese social media. Even state media has waded in, highlighting the events at Alibaba. The Communist Party's anti-corruption watchdog warned that it will crack down on a corporate culture of heavy drinking and ban songs with harmful lyrics from karaoke machines. This has raised the tantalising question of whether China is facing its Me Too moment and how that will be met by a male-dominated and deeply paranoid Chinese Communist Party. A culture of boorish drinking and entertaining, sexual discrimination and casual harassment is widespread in the Chinese workplace. In the past, most efforts to draw attention to abuse have faced CCP censorship and intimidation. Activists trying to give momentum to Me Too have been arrested and faced online harassment and abuse by nationalist trolls. And the law is stacked heavily against those seeking justice. Hu Qian, a former journalist, became the face of the Me Too movement in China two years ago when she accused a well-known journalist of sexual assault. It finally came to court earlier this year, but the judge sided against her and ordered her to pay the accused's legal fees and damages. She said she would continue to press her case and critics accused the court of denying the existence of sexual harassment. This was not an isolated example. Courts routinely give stronger protection to alleged harassers than their victims, who must prove their claims to a high degree of likelihood, typically between 75% and 85% certainty. Huang Shui-Chin, another journalist and prominent Me Too activist who had sought to draw attention to harassment, was detained for picking quarrels and provoking trouble. The Feminist Five, a group of young activists, were arrested in 2015 on the same charge after they tried to draw attention to harassment on public transport. In March, Xiao Meili, a close associate of the Feminist Five, went for dinner with friends to a hot pot restaurant in the city of Chengdu. 
She asked a man sitting nearby to stop smoking and received a barrage of abuse. The man then tipped the oily liquid from the hot pot over Xiao and her friends. Xiao went to the police, who refused to take sides, saying both were to blame. She then posted a video of the incident, which she had filmed with her mobile phone, and it went viral. She was bombarded with misogynistic abuse online. Many from nationalist trolls who conflated women's rights with foreign influence. Under Xi Jinping, online nationalists have been given considerable leeway. Discrimination runs deep in China. Few companies have mechanisms to deal with it. And although the country has enacted a number of laws targeting sexism or harassment in the workplace, they are poorly enforced. Women face widespread job discrimination based on marital or parental status. Companies avoid hiring or even get rid of those who are likely to become pregnant. The Education Ministry recently provoked an online storm when it suggested that young Chinese men had become too feminine. It issued a proposal to prevent the feminization of male adolescents, which called on schools to recruit retired athletes with a view to cultivating students' masculinity. There was further outrage when a commentator with state broadcaster CCTV asked a female athlete who had just won an Olympic gold in the shot put whether she would change her masculine appearance to find a husband. Cynics point out that the current Führer suits the Communist Party well. Alibaba, the big tech and big tech more generally, are the target of an official clampdown, so all the better if the scandal damages the company. Entertainers are fair game too. They're well removed from politics. The CCP may be calculating that it can channel the outrage in much the same way that it channels online nationalism against those perceived to have offended China. If the sexual assault accusations had involved a party official or a party-linked entity, it is unlikely that discussion would be tolerated or indeed that the case would have come to light at all. Women hold up half the sky, Mao Zedong once wrote, a slogan often trotted out to demonstrate his supposed commitment to equality. In fact, as many biographies, beginning with that of his personal doctor, testify, Mao was a sexual predator. He abandoned his four wives and most of his children, and as he sunk into decrepitude, he preyed on young women. The CCP is paternalistic by nature. She, a dour autocrat, heads a seven-strong Politburo standing committee, all grey, middle-aged men. Beneath them, the 25-member Politburo has just one woman. The ratio does improve lower down the party ranks, but not by much. Me Too has had a galvanising effect in the West. In China, the ability of women's rights groups to leverage the online outrage into a wider Western-style movement is constrained by Xi's fierce crackdown on civil society, targeting NGOs, independent-minded journalists, dissidents, academics and lawyers. Feminists still face a Communist Party, suspicious and intolerant of anything that smacks of organised opposition and everything beyond its control. That was Ian Williams. And finally, Toby Young. Given how difficult it is to arrange an overseas holiday, I thought I'd take Charlie and Freddie, my two youngest, to the northeast for a mini-break. Admittedly, not the most glamorous of locations, but we had a reason to be there. QPR were playing two away games on the spin, 
the first in Hull, the second in Middlesbrough. We plan to take the train to Hull in time for Saturday's match, hire a car, drive along the coast, stopping at Scarborough and Whitby on the way, and arrive in Middlesbrough for Wednesday night's game. Then it will be back to London the following day. Seeing a less affluent part of the country was an eye-opener for Charlie. I don't mean the devastation left by the decline of Britain's manufacturing industries. Rather, he was surprised by how similar the North East is to London. I didn't know they had Sainsbury's outside England, he said, staring at a superstore in Hull. We're in England, you numpty, I said. This became a running gag, with Charlie expressing mock astonishment each time he spotted a well-known high street brand outside England. It wasn't the absence of these chain stores that differentiated the North East from London, but the lack of attractive alternatives. There were plenty of shops below these familiar names in the retail hierarchy, but not many above. Where were the Italian delis, the artisanal bakeries, the organic greengrocers? In a coffee shop in Scarborough, I made the mistake of asking for a cortado, and when the man behind the counter looked puzzled, I explained it was halfway between a double macchiato and a flat white. I've no idea what you're talking about, he said. Far as I'm concerned, coffee's just coffee. Happily, most of the people we encountered were more welcoming. I told my sons that northerners are much friendlier than southerners, and the reaction of the Hull fans after QPR beat them 3-0 proved my point. We'd been invited for an early supper at a Greek restaurant by a professor at Hull University and didn't have time to go back to our hotel to get changed, so had to make our way there in QPR colours. Had we been Chelsea fans wandering around Highbury after the Blues beat Arsenal last Sunday, we would have been showered with abuse, possibly worse. But whenever we crossed paths with someone in a Hull shirt, they congratulated us and said we deserved to win. I dare say it helped being accompanied by two boys. Even the most malevolent hooligan would hesitate before beating up a father in front of his children. But it isn't just football fans who are sentimental about kids. After the Middlesbrough game, we went back to the Holiday Inn Express just as the kitchen closed. No chance of a pepperoni pizza, I asked the receptionist. Is it for your two lads, she said, smiling at them. It wasn't, actually. I bought them each a chicken pie and some cheesy chips at the Riverside Stadium, but I nodded and did my best to look like a concerned father. I'll see what I can do, she said. Not only did she bring us a pizza, but we were all given a free croissant with a packet of Nutella. So much for my diet. Another reason for the trip was that my mother's family, the Mawsons, were originally shipbuilders in Whitby, and a cousin had told me they featured prominently in the local Captain Cook Museum. According to my cousin, they built the ship that Cook sailed to Australia in. Consequently, I frog-marched my sons round the museum, scouring the exhibits for references to my ancestors, but couldn't find any. Freddie joked that they'd probably been removed because of their links to the slave trade. If you look in the harbour, you might find a statue of your great-great-grandfather, he said. QPR beat Borough 3-2, coming back from 1-0 down, so it was a successful trip. Charlie was almost beside himself with excitement after the game, telling me he'd been cheering the team on so enthusiastically that he'd had difficulty catching his breath. It's the best feeling in the world, he said. I shared his joy. After more than 18 months of having to watch up the telly, playing in front of empty seats, it was glorious to be back, surrounded by tens of thousands of people singing their hearts out. Please, God, don't let there be another lockdown. That was Toby Young. Thanks for listening to this episode of Spectator Out Loud. 
And remember, if you like this podcast, please do leave us a review or a rating. And don't forget to pick up that free bottle of PIMS when you subscribe to The Spectator at just spectator.co.uk forward slash PIMS. Thanks for listening and join us again next week.